it's back there. So um, as you noticed on the wall there, we have put the names of individuals that we're praying for. And, um, you know, it was funny. Last night I was actually uh, spending some time with one of the members here at the church, and he went over and he put his arm around someone and he said, Hey, Pastor Rob, this is my brick. And he's pointing at the person. So um, I, was, I was very excited that he was excited, um, but the other guy was like, Quit telling people that I'm your brick. <laughs> and he said that uh, he might write his name on a brick and put it through that guy's window. So, <laughs> so let's be praying for people, huh? Uh, please open your Bibles with me, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, we're looking at verses 24, and then we're actually getting into chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can p- turn your Bible to page 983. There's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you'll find yourself in the text with us this morning. Colossians 1, starting at verse 24. Life is full of mysteries and puzzles. Some of those mysteries we understand um, somewhat. Others, we think we understand them. But who knows? I mean, it's a mystery. We might never understand it. Like, let me give you an example. Take the bloop. Maybe you've heard about it. In 1997, the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration detected an extremely powerful underwater bloop sound. Now, what could this be? Speculations have run wild. Some people that wear the tinfoil hats have said that this is one of those monstrously large underwater sea creatures. And you know, it's pictures like that that make me afraid to uh, swim in deep, dark water. I don't know about you. Um, And I choose by faith to go with the NOAA theory, which is a little more reasonable. They say that the bloop is probably the sound of a huge ice quake. What do you think? It's a mystery. There are many puzzling questions out there. Like, how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? They didn't have the modern tools for measurement. They say that some of the bricks fit so close together that you couldn't fit a credit card in between them. Or how did they get the stones of stones, Stonehenge to stand on top of one another? Or here's one I want to know. Do aliens exist? I mean, you do not grow up watching the X-Files without a part of you saying that the truth is out there. Or how about this mystery? Just one sock left on the ground is enough to give me an all-expense-paid trip to Chateau Couch. Or how is it that when kids are playing and running around, there is a magnetic attraction between heads? Mystery. When it comes to the Bible, there are no shortage of mysteries. Jesus told his disciples that he spoke in parables because there were secrets to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There's the mystery of Israel that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. There's the mystery of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When's it going to happen? What it's going to be like? We don't know. It's a mystery. 
So as we open our Bibles and we're looking at Colossians, we're going to turn to another mystery. Paul tells the Colossian church that he has been called to be a steward of a mystery. Now, a steward is someone that is responsible for something that belongs to someone else. So this mystery belongs to God. And at the center of this mystery is the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the question we're asking as we're making our way through this book. Well, let's begin with a first implication, the mystery. Jesus is God's declassified plan. And we'll read verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ and you, the hope of glory. Now, when you read Paul, I, I sometimes suspect that he loved Sherlock Holmes' novels because he uses this word mystery all over the place in the New Testament. In fact, to be precise, 21 times throughout his letters, four times in the book of Colossians, three times in the section of text that we're covering this morning. So when he's writing to the Colossian church, he's writing to a group of people who came out of one religious background and into another religious background. And this word mystery was something of a buzzword. It referred to secret information that had to be kept hidden from the uninitiated. As in, there was an in-group and there was an out-group. And the in-group obviously knew the right things. The out-group didn't. So Paul uses the word in a much different way. When he speaks of the word, he speaks of it in terms of some information that God knows that he has chosen not to reveal yet. Have you ever uh, seen those unveil parties? People are unveiling like the sex of the baby or the name of the baby. That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's a piece of information that they know, and otherwise people wouldn't know unless they shared it with them. Now, I thought it'd be really interesting if someone did the unveil party for a child's name when they turned 16 or something like that. You know, we can get really creative, can't we? So the mystery centers around a progressive plan that God eternally had in mind to save the world. For a time... It was divine classified information. But as you read the Old Testament, there's some leaks along the way. So we see one of these leaks when Paul tells us that Abraham received a preview. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, in the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then the plan was also given partially to the prophets, Hebrew 1.1, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but it was not made declassified until the cross of Jesus Christ and the events that would follow. And that's why Paul says in this text, Colossians 1.25, that the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to the saints. So what is this mystery? Verse 27. 
to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is the full inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan of salvation. They get to share in all the blessings and the benefits of Israel. That's what a Gentile is. It is a non-Jew. So when I'm looking out at a room like this, other than maybe Bobby Moritz, I'm looking at Gentiles. Now this might not be a mind-blowing thing to you, but as the church was just forming, this caught the Apostle Peter completely off guard. When you go back into the book of Acts, you see that Peter, or there's a Roman soldier named Cornelius who was searching for God. Uh, He knew of God, he knew things about God, but he wanted to know God. And he didn't know Jesus, so he didn't know God in the way that he should. And so he's met in a vision by an angel, and he's told to go find Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know that Peter can be a little slow on the uptake at times. And so God meets him in a vision to prepare him to play nice with Cornelius. In fact, I can't believe that Peter actually said these words to Cornelius when he first met him. In Acts 10, 28, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for me, a Jew, to associate with you or to visit anyone from another nation. He said that to him, to his face. So God had to do a work in Peter to get Peter ready to talk to Cornelius. So what happens? On this vision, Peter sees a heavenly blanket fall out of the sky and land on the ground. I mean, it's like a giant picnic blanket. And then there's a bunch of different animals on this blanket, and God says to him, Peter, I want you to grab a pulled pork sandwich and chow down. He was essentially offering him the Brazilian grill on a sheet. But Peter thought like a good Jew, and he said, no, 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 Lord, I can't eat that. Our laws say that that's unclean. I mean, can you imagine this exchange? God is telling him that he can eat something, and he's coming back at God and saying, God, I can't eat that because you said I can't eat it. So then a second time, and a third time, God presents him the same vision, and he says, I'm not going to eat. And God says, Peter, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Now, you'd think that the third time's a charm, right? But the text says that Peter was very perplexed after the vision. He had no idea of what was going on until he heard a thump, 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 thump on Simon the Tanner's door. And there standing at the door were a couple of Gentiles. And they were bringing him to a guy named Cornelius. And then that's when it kind of clicked in Peter's head of what God was doing here. And later he would say to Cornelius, I see very clearly, and I would put a big emphatic now, that God shows no favoritism. In every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then later he goes on to say, Jesus is the one all the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Later Paul would write in Ephesians 3.6, this is the mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, 
and partakers of the promises of God in Christ through the gospel. You want to know what the big point here is or the big deal is? We all equally share in the benefits and blessings of the gospel. There's not an in-group and an out-group. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord receives the full benefits. And what's the greatest treasure of all? Well, Paul says in verse 27 of Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The heart of the mystery is that Christ himself indwells believers And He is the reason for our hope. In other words, God's secret plan is not a timetable. It's not an event. It's a person. It's Jesus Himself. And this is confirmed a couple of verses later in um, chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 3, where Paul says to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is who? Christ which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that when Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, he's not saying that people can't know anything if they don't know Jesus. There's plenty of brilliant atheists. But what he is saying is that anything that has to do with meaning and purpose and ultimate human existence, all of the treasures of those things are found hidden in Christ. So that when you look at the person and the work of Jesus, in Jesus, we learn the things that matter most, the character of God, how God relates to creation. We learn about how good and evil interact in the world. We learn about finding peace with God and even the more mundane things of this life, like how do I make my marriage work? How do I love other people? How do I be a good friend? All of these things are tethered to Christ. And if we know him, we know them. Paul viewed this declassified knowledge of Jesus as precious treasure. And it is. How many people are walking around searching and asking these very questions? It's gold, it's priceless. And if it is all of those things, then how do you handle a message that is this good? And this is where Paul moves next. He talks about the stewardship of ministry. How to handle the message well. Now, Paul viewed the ministry, as we saw in verse 25, as a stewardship. He he understood that this message was so precious that he had to give everything in order to broadcast it to the world. I want you to think about classified information for a minute with me. Have you ever had a piece of information that you were responsible for, that you had to care for, that there were certain priorities and obligations to that piece of information? I think of a U.S. Navy sailor last year, Chris Saucier, who was sentenced to a year in prison for taking six photos of a classified area inside of a nuclear attack sub while he was in port in Connecticut. The photos showed the nuclear reactor compartment, the auxiliary steam propulsion panel, and the maneuvering compartment. He was charged a prison sentence because he was a poor steward of this information. 
Well, Paul, on the other hand, sets the gold standard for how you handle the message. He talks about proclaiming it. Look at verses 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see, Paul understood, firstly, that it was Jesus that he was proclaiming. That was the center of his message. In verse 25, Paul said that he was a servant of God to make the word of God fully known, and he understood this to be connected with the ministry of preaching Christ, warning people and teaching people that he might present people mature in Jesus. So if Jesus is the treasury of God's salvific plan in life and godliness then the steward must stick to the message. It was George Whitfield who said that other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Charles Spurgeon, he was a deeply convicted Christ-centered preacher uh, who, standing in his pulpit at Metropolitan Tabernacle, a massive uh, place of worship that would accommodate the crowds that would come to hear him preach over the next 30 years, the first words that he issued from his pulpit were these. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, shall be the person of Jesus Christ, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist. But if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Is it important to have good doctrinal standards? Absolutely. But doctrine is only as important as it relates to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the message. So that there's nothing really beyond that, that simple gospel message. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. And this is the message that captured and constrained the Apostle Paul. That's why he would say things like in Galatians 2.20, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's nothing better than that to preach. And notice, too, that this message for everyone, because Paul repeats everyone a lot in verse 28. In fact, three times he says everyone. He's essentially saying that the gospel is to be proclaimed to every living, breathing person, no exceptions. doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. You need to hear about Jesus if Jesus' work on the cross, as we saw last week, left no part of the universe untouched, then the church should take the same mindset with humanity. We need to bring the gospel to all people in all places. And notice that Paul doesn't say, him I proclaim. He says, him who? We. Who's we? It's us. The church. So that's the proclamation. What about the toil? I mean, when you think about what Paul's asking us to do to preach the gospel to everyone, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of hard work. And that's right. 
It is hard work. That's why he says in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. I mean, even though um, pastors only work on Sundays, uh, that one day, that one day is a really, really hard day. But let me just say this. This passage is not speaking just directly to ministers. You can read through a passage like this and you can say, oh, that's just speaking to Rob or Kimo or Josh or one of the elders, but this doesn't mean me. It means you. Because the same words that Paul uses in verse 28, teach, admonish, all wisdom, he says it's the responsibility of every member. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. That means it's not just my job. And then what does he go on to say? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? So that's not just Chemo's job. I was looking out this morning and I I sometimes wonder if the apocalypse has occurred right when churches started. You see like five people sitting out there and I'm like, oh my goodness, I I think I've missed the rapture and I'm sitting here in church. But I just want to say that to say that the worship time is not the preliminaries. All of those things are essential for growing us in Jesus and we should take them all seriously. So that word toil that Paul's talking about, it focuses on the exhaustion and weariness that ministry brings. It's not just that it's work, but it's hard work. Well, how is it hard? Well, it's hard to stay up at night thinking about people that you know are suffering. It's hard Uh, to fight personal temptation and the pressure of feeling like you need to be somehow morally superior when you don't need to be. There are physical demands. Many parts of the world know persecution and pain and suffering. And to add to this, there's the temptation to fight laziness. There's the temptation to quit when you see things aren't going well. There's the frustration and discouragement and disillusionment of dealing with sinful people. There's the weight of carrying multiple hard situations on your shoulders at the same time. There are times when you mourn the loss of the family. And to add to all of this, there is an enemy of your soul who hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. Satan. And he wants nothing more than to accuse you, tempt you, and discourage you. Now, if I was to ask you the question, though, is it worth it? I'd hope that your response would be, absolutely. Absolutely it's worth it. Because just because something is hard, it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. And all the beautiful things that come along with gospel ministry overshadow all of the hard things. If you just think about the hard things, then yes, it gets wearisome. But if you know that there's beautiful things alongside of it, you say it's worth it. Like the privilege of praying with others who are crying out desperately to God for those who need to be saved. Watching the church band together around those who are in need. Seeing people trust Jesus and grow. Hearing the children laugh. Watching 200 aunts and uncles surround them and love them in Christ. You know, I hear things like the church is full of hypocrites and judgmental people. And I gotta say this, it's a caricature. Because if you've invested in the church of Jesus, and I'm saying this from experience, for every one person that I've seen like that, I've seen a hundred that would take the shirt off of their back to love someone in the name of Jesus. So is it worth it? Absolutely. And besides that, you don't have to do it by yourselves. 
Paul says, I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. He's not saying like, put your hands behind your head and prop up your legs on the couch and say, God, you are working hard. He is talking about the Spirit of God putting wind in your sails. He is energizing your energy so that when you're working hard, the Spirit of God is fueling you to be able to work hard. He's giving you the resources. But this is why we have to abide in Jesus. Because the moment you unplug from Jesus, the moment ministry just becomes toil. The stewardship involves proclamation and toil. It also involves suffering. Go back with me to verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, as Paul writes these words, he is probably writing with an arthritic hand in a prison cell He's probably hunched over the table with a disfigured body. Church history would say that Paul walked with a gait in his step. There was a hunch to him. Why? Probably the consequences and effects of the many beatings that he had received for serving Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.33, Paul says, Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes Undergoing that one time is enough to disfigure a man for life. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. And he just goes on and on. And we don't even read of all these things in the book of Acts. In Galatians 6.17, Paul writes, From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Why would Paul endure this and say, I rejoice in my sufferings? Is he some kind of Christian masochist? Sam Storms writes, Suffering for sin is a reproach. Suffering for suffering's sake is perverted. Suffering for the sake of Christ and his people is grounds for joy. We rejoice in suffering because we believe that something is more important and more precious and more valuable than physical comfort and convenience. And what is that? It's the treasure, it's the gold. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul describes his suffering like this. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, that is one of the most debated verses in all the Bible. So just welcome to that. Book-length treatments. Here's the one thing we know it doesn't mean. So a lot of ink has been spilt and wasted on this. It has nothing to do with the sufficiency of Christ. I mean, the whole letter of Colossians says that Jesus' atonement was enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So all the arguments outside of that, now we can bat those around, but I'm going to give you the one I think. I believe that Paul is saying that Christ closely identifies with our suffering when we suffer with him. 
So you get this interaction with Paul and Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's heading out to persecute the church, and Jesus responds to him, and he says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Does he say them? Me. Later on, after his conversion, it was said of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, R. Kent Hughes, the former pastor of College Church, shares the story of Helena Roosevelt. She was a British doctor. She served over 20 years in the country of Tsar, which is present-day Congo. For 12 and a half years, she was busily working happily, though it was very busy. She was the only doctor for about 500,000 people. But in 1964, revolution overwhelmed the country, and she and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of almost unbelievable brutality and torture. On one occasion, when Dr. Rosavera was on the verge of being executed, there was a 17-year-old boy who stood in her defense, and he was thrown to the ground and kicked around like a football and left for dead. In a moment of sickness, she thought that God had forsaken her, even though the reality of God hadn't left her. It was in that moment of despair that God stepped in and overwhelmed her with the sense of his own presence and said something like this, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary the privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. And as the force of that message hit home to Dr. Roosevelt's heart, she was overcome with a great sense of privilege. The same privilege the apostles shared when they were beaten for Christ and rejoiced a privilege that she carried up until last year in 2016 when she went and stood before the Lord Jesus Christ face to face and heard from him, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, every blow that the church receives falls on Christ too. I think of that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking in the fiery furnace, and there's this fourth person that's in the furnace, and I believe that that was Jesus. Just like Jesus walked with them, he walks with us in our suffering when we suffer for his name. And I've often thought that it's not a tragedy to suffer for something worthy. It's a tragedy to have nothing in your life worth suffering for. Paul had something worth suffering for. He said from a Roman jail in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Proclamation, toil, rejoicing in suffering. This is how you handle the message well. So my question to you is how are you handling the message? Are you proclaiming him? Are you willing to work hard for the name of Jesus? Would you suffer should it come to that? What happens when you handle the message well? People flourish in Jesus. And that's the goal. See, Paul talks about this mystery and he talks about a stewardship, but there's an aim to it. 
The goal is maturity in Christ. In verse 28, we proclaim him. Why? To present everyone what? Mature. Um, I have these verses, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, written behind my desk on the wall. And it reminds me of the purpose of ministry. It's not just enough to open up the door of the house of faith and to say to people, come on in, good luck, welcome. Ministry is about grabbing people by the hand, walking them through the door, introducing them to the owner, and showing them all the benefits of the house that are now theirs in him. That's why we do ministry. We don't do it just so that people come to know Jesus. We do it so that people come to flourish in Jesus. So Paul knew that maturity was the goal, and he also knew that there were certain elements that lead to maturity. Strong hearts, united hearts, assured hearts. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Such precious verses from the Scripture. It was on May 1st of 2016 that I stood before this church and I preached these verses as I was standing as the candidate. And anytime I go back to these verses and I think to myself, what exactly do I want for Osterville Baptist Church? I think of this text. Why? Because we live in an incredibly distracting world. Uh, some churches get so bent on growth that it becomes all about growth. Others look to maintain the status quo. Others become this like cause-oriented church where they're just moving from cause to cause to cause. Others have no idea what they're doing. But Paul has a destination in mind called maturity. And he knows that maturity is achieved through the human heart. One author says this about the heart. The heart is the center of the personality. It's the place of thought, reason, deliberation. It is not the source only of affection and emotion, but of will and of thought. The heart, in Paul's view, is the very core of the inner being, so that when Paul is saying that he wants Christians to be mature, he wants them to be whole and complete at the very core of their being. That's the goal of Christian ministry. So how is this achieved? Well, it's achieved with strong hearts. Those are fortified hearts. Hearts that have been strengthened by encouragement and truth. Encouragement is something that strengthens. Hearts wither in an atmosphere of disproportionate criticism. Even if it's constructive. But when I'm saying encouragement, I'm not talking about some kind of vague, flippant statement where it's like, oh, you're just a very good person. That's vague. I'm talking about truth-grounded words that lift a person up. I have seen the power of the gospel working in you in this way. And I tell you, when you hear words like that, you are picked up. But notice that we need each other to grow strong hearts. Do you ever think about that? You need encouragement, and the only way you're going to get encouragement is by another person. Christians wither 
in isolation. That's why Paul talks about united hearts, hearts that are held together by glue called love. It's been said that Christ always unites and error always separates. I've heard Christians make statements like this. I've left that church because they weren't deep enough for me. I get more out of my own study. I don't need others. And the only thing I can think after I pick my job off the ground is I don't think you understand what the Bible is talking about with regard to knowledge. You see, I want to know depth. I love it. I want to know the depths of God. I want to know the depths of the Son of God and the Spirit of God. I want to drink deeply from the well of the scriptural truth, but I don't want to experience depth from the monastery or the ivory tower. I want depth with you, the church. I want to see the depths as the body of Christ lives it. I see it as people pray with tears for one another. When Christians surround someone they don't know, but it doesn't matter because God's called us to be hospitable. When meals are taken, when someone's eyes light up because they're sitting across the table and they're grasping a scriptural truth for the first time, when believers stand together in the truth, when I see a church voting together in unity, uplifting the brokenhearted. One writer says this, when we are loved by others, we experience Christ through them and thus our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. Complete understanding of the mystery comes in loving community. Now, you have strong hearts, you have united hearts, you also have assured hearts. Let's just be really honest about something. At some point in your Christian walk, you're going to struggle with doubt. Doubt. I don't care who you are, you will struggle with doubt. Some of you, it might be from time to time. Others of you might struggle with doubt on a daily basis. Why do we? Because there is a present faith and there's a perfect faith, and we're living in the present. Christians can struggle with anything in doubt. They can struggle with whether or not they're saved, whether or not God loves them, uh, struggle with whether or not the Bible's true. They might even in moments of weakness have the question occur, does God exist? In an article called Seven Ways to Deal with Doubt, the author shares these principles. Have mercy on those who doubt. You've been there. Two, Realize that doubt often leads to deeper faith. Isn't that encouraging to think about? Job experienced that. Three, be comfortable to live with mystery. There are some things that are for God. There are other things that are for us. Let him figure those things out. Make the main thing the main thing. Sometimes I hear Christians doubting over a secondary issue, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. And then he goes on to share who Christ is and what Christ did. Jesus is the treasure. Stick with him. Fourth, live according to the faith you do have. If two people are walking the same road, one believes 10% that they're going to get there and the other believes 90% that they're going to get there, what happens when both complete the journey? They both arrive. Six, doubt your doubts. I once challenged a young man. He was 
perpetually questioning the Christian faith, and I said to him, have you ever applied the same scrutiny to the detractors, the naysayers of the Christian faith that you're applying to Christianity? And he just kind of stopped and looked like this and said, oh, I see. It was like a light bulb had gone off in his head. Seven, do you have ongoing sin in your life? You see, disobedience takes a toll on faith. The big principle here, though, is that our assurance grows as we grow to know Jesus. If you want to be confident in Jesus, you have to jump into the treasury vault of God's rich, lavish wealth that is found in the word of God. I think of Scrooge from Duck Tales as he's swimming around in the gold. I grew up watching that as a kid. And he's just holding the gold and he's throwing it up and down. Have you ever done that with the truth of God's word? Have you ever just thrown the gold around and just enjoyed it? That's what I'm talking about here. Ignorance breeds heresy. But deep, meaningful, spirit-led Bible study in the context of community makes you feel the depths and riches of the treasures that are yours in Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the treasury of God's wisdom. Christians who want to the most out of the Christian life know that the, the best time input for you is to grow in your knowledge and your focus of Jesus. It was less than a month before C.S. Lewis died that he wrote a letter to a young girl. He said, Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter. And it was very good for you to write and tell me that you like my books. And what a very good letter you write for at your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. What can go wrong if we have the riches of Jesus. If we grow to know Jesus and what we think about Jesus, it's everything. You see, in Jesus, if we believe in him, that he's internal, if he's without beginning and end, if you believe that he created everything, the sunrises and sunsets, the cool breezes, the neutrons, the electrons, the mountain ranges, the, the specks of dust that cross the expanse of the trillions of light years of the universe, if you believe that he's holding it all together, the atoms in our body and all the atoms of the universe, and if he can hold those things together, then he can hold my life together, and if you believe that Jesus is God's declassified plan that the entire universe is being reconciled to him that we humanity can be reconciled to him by believing in him in the cross if you believe that he loves you and that he proved it on the cross then what can really go wrong with your life you won't get distracted you'll feel rich and it's no mystery if you have Jesus you have the treasury of God. And who's richer than God? Would you bow your heads with me?